1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There's a new entrant among the world's energy superpowers, America. Thanks to plentiful oil from shale, it may even become a net exporter within a couple of years. But getting the geopolitics of oil markets right will be trickier than getting the stuff out of the ground. And Happy Shemin Nassim, the spring holiday is celebrated by just about everyone in Egypt, Muslims and Christians alike. And it comes with an associated dish, a stinky fermented fish that has the potential to kill. First up, though. Trade talks between America and China appear to be entering an endgame. Discussions between the two countries will resume this week after a tit for tat trade war that has cast a shadow over the world economy. Detail on what's been discussed so far has been vague, but the mood music from both camps has been positive. The Chinese have spoken of tangible progress. Steve Mnuchin, America's Treasury Secretary, says the talks are in the final lapse. And President Donald Trump, who last week suggested a visit from his counterpart Xi Jinping could be on the cards, has played up the significance of any agreement.
0: It's a massive deal. Could be one of the, I guess it is if you think about it, the biggest deal ever made. There can't be a deal like this. No matter where you look, there can't be a deal like this. This is, uh, this is the granddaddy of them all. So
2: this week, the American officials are going to Beijing.
1: Samaya Keynes is our U.S. economics editor.
2: We've got Robert Lighthizer, who's the United States trade representative. He's going. And also Steve Mnuchin, who's the Treasury Secretary.
1: So both sides have been fairly tight-lipped about how things are, are coming along. For as much as you know, how are things coming along? (laughs)
2: Well, we've been hearing some positive noises coming out of the talks. There was an email from the White House describing the content of this week's discussions. And and so they're going to cover trade issues, including intellectual property, forced technology transfer, non-tariff barriers, agriculture, services, purchases and enforcement.
1: Well, it it does sound like a fairly broad palette of stuff that they're talking about. I mean, w- what are the most important ones and which are the stickiest ones?
2: As you said, they've been fairly tight-lipped about what exactly is going on. Although we have been getting some signals of of what is, you know, very important to the China hawks within the Trump administration. So, Robert Lighthizer has made a big fuss over enforcement. And historically, that has been a problem whereby, you know, the Chinese will make promises and then they'll not actually implement them. And so what they need to find is some mechanism where the Americans can actually trust that the Chinese will do what they they say they're going to do and that they can hold them to account. What that means in practice is that they're going to be talking about, one, what circumstances there would have to be for the Americans to be able to... You know, punish the Chinese. So you know, what would allow the Americans to be able to apply more tariffs on China? And then two, how quickly will the existing tariffs on China be removed? That is, I think, a huge bone of contention. Obviously, the Chinese want the tariffs in place to be removed overnight immediately. And the Trump administration is saying, hey, not so fast. We need some sort of carrot to you know, give you the incentive to actually follow through. If we take these off immediately, what incentive do you have to do any further reforms?
1: Steve Mnuchin has uh, hinted that talks are entering, entering the final stage, and for his part, President Trump has been hinting Xi Jinping could be visiting the White House very soon.
0: The White House is a place of history. 1799. That's a long time. Now, when President Xi comes from China... And I say 1799, he thinks that's a modern house because their culture is very, very old, 5,000 years.
1: Is this talk of a visit from Mr. Xi and an overture we can or should read anything into?
2: I think we should. I think that speaks to the strong desire of President Donald Trump to see a deal. There are talks this week. There are going to be another round of talks next week as the Chinese are going to come to Washington There's a lot of reluctance on the Chinese side to sign up to an official summit between the two heads of state before the final deal is announced. They want to avoid the embarrassing situation of essentially President Xi coming to the U.S. or meeting the President Donald Trump and then Trump turning around at the last minute and saying, sorry, it's not good enough. So they're waiting until they've effectively got the outline of a deal before they, they arrange that summit. Interestingly, it does look like there is an opening in the president's schedule between his trip to Japan in late May and his trip to the UK in early June. So there are a few days there that could be used to schedule in this summit. But I think these next two weeks of, of talks you know, will get better signals of whether that summit is going to happen.
1: Over the course of this there's there's been uh, hints and various reports that you know talks could collapse at this point, and this is a crucial point for for them. Is there a, any sense that the the talks could still collapse altogether?
0: I
2: don't know. I think given the generally positive tone of the two sides, I think it's much more likely that the talks are delayed rather than that they collapse. I think it is possible that they they do some kind of deal. And then at some point later down the line, the Americans judged that the Chinese had broken the rules and they, they tried to use this enforcement mechanism, put tariffs back on and, and relations sour again. But I think now, given all the noises from, from the president, he does want to be seen to be this dealmaker in chief. I'd be very surprised if we don't get some kind of summit at some point in the near future.
1: Samaya, so, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: America has been a superpower for more than half a century, but for most of that time, it's had to look elsewhere for some of its energy. That has changed dramatically in just the past 10 years as the shale boom has taken off.
0: America's history as an energy superpower is incredibly short. So for most of the past 40 years, it was illegal to export any American oil. And America simply wasn't producing that much. So oil imports accounted for a very big chunk of the country's current account deficit.
1: Charlotte Howard is The Economist's energy and commodities editor.
0: Trump is the first president to really seize this newfound power that America has as now the world's biggest producer of crude. Last year in May, Donald Trump announced that he would impose sanctions on Iran and abandon the nuclear deal that Barack Obama had signed. That meant that Iran's exports of crude would fall dramatically. And over the course of the past year, you've seen big swings in oil prices as countries prepared for Iranian barrels to be removed from the market.
1: In November, as sanctions against Iran were about to go into effect, the Trump administration unexpectedly granted big waivers to some strategic allies. Those exceptions allowed the countries to continue buying Iranian oil, causing prices to plunge. But last week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced that the waivers would be rescinded.
2: The goal remains simple, to deprive the outlaw regime of the funds has used to destabilize the Middle East for four decades and incentivize Iran to behave like a normal country. Today I'm announcing that we will no longer grant any exemptions. We're going to Zero going to zero across the board.
1: That, in turn, caused the oil price to shoot back up, although it fell slightly over the weekend after President Donald Trump asked OPEC to increase output to offset the effect of the sanctions. The Trump administration has also been using oil sanctions for political leverage in Venezuela against President Nicolas Maduro, with the aim of ousting him and installing opposition leader Juan Guaidó. Sanctions were intensified yesterday on oil companies more than half owned by the Venezuelan state, including the wholly state-run PDVSA. America is starting to throw its weight around, flush with the power brought by its shale industry. But what does that mean for the global oil trade?
0: So America is now the world's biggest producer of crude, but that doesn't mean that it has the most capacity to produce crude oil. Saudi Arabia remains a giant. And there are other very large petrostates as well. So Iran is a very large producer. Venezuela has vast reserves. Iraq, Libya. There are a number of different countries that remain very significant producers. But it's America that has really seen the most dramatic increase in the past decade.
1: And in fact, it's been moves by America that have had the, the biggest effect on the oil price over the past year or so.
0: Well, there's some debate on the factors that have been really swinging the oil price up and down. But in the past, when you thought about political instability and oil prices, you might have thought about potentially a civil war or a dramatic regime change or um, an attack, political unrest. And you've seen that certainly in Venezuela. That has been a big factor this year as oil production in Venezuela continues to decline under Maduro. But America's version of political instability is a little different in that the Trump administration is starting to wield America's power as an energy producer, but it's doing so in kind of unpredictable ways in the ways that it is enforcing its sanctions.
1: Well, exactly. I mean, why sort of impose the sanctions on Iran and then grant the waivers and then withdraw the waivers? Is there is there a sense for what they were attempting to do here?
0: So they announced the sanctions on Iran last May. The announcement of waivers came just a few days before both the sanctions were to take effect in November and before the midterm elections. So Trump's trying to do a few things. One is that he's trying to have a hard line with Iran, uh, which is a priority, a foreign policy priority for his administration. He also is wary of oil prices rising too high, both before the midterms and now gearing up for the presidential election next year. And he doesn't want to anger the countries that remain significant importers of crude. So he, he gave big waivers to China, which is the biggest importer of Iranian crude, as well as India and six other markets. Um, more recently, the surprise was that the Trump administration has said it won't extend them at all to any country. So that was a shock.
1: And it looks as if uh, sort of flush with its new oil wealth, uh, America is quickly getting in the business of of trying to manipulate the markets.
0: Markets is, I think, a bit of a strong term. What you do see, though, is America has new confidence in taking on regimes that are big producers of oil. So in the past, the prior administrations may not have been quite so aggressive in trying to throw its weight around with, with a very large producer of oil for fear that it would result in very high prices for Americans at the pump. Now that America has itself become such a big producer of crude, Donald Trump feels a bit more emboldened to pursue some of these foreign policy goals that involve uh, large oil-producing countries.
1: But do you think that 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 kind of confidence is justified?
0: Uh, I think a little bit of confidence is justified. The trick is figuring out how to use that power – effectively. So oil sanctions are a very blunt instrument. In the past year, the Trump administration has announced sanctions for Iran and for Venezuela. So far, those sanctions have not had the desired effect. Um, Maduro is still in power in Venezuela. Iran has not met any of the Trump administration's demands. So that doesn't mean that it won't eventually be effective, but there's not evidence yet that the sanctions will have that desired effect. And in the meantime, there are many factors that are completely beyond the president's control. There are many other factors that influence whether oil prices rise or fall, and the United States is increasingly a main force in in oil markets, but it can't control this diffuse set of actors that that are a part of the oil market.
1: So, now that america is is in this role of uh, of throwing its weight around and then uh, needing to become an enforcer, how, how will countries respond to the sanctions? I mean, how do you expect in, in particular for Iran to to react to the surprise news about the waivers?
0: Well, they are obviously extremely displeased and have threatened to close the Strait of Hormuz, which is a main channel for exports from the region. You may see sort of increasingly aggressive maneuvers in the next few weeks and months in terms of the way that others respond. It's unclear. You know, Turkey and China each had members of the government immediately after the Trump administration announced um, that it would not grant additional waivers to sanctions. They each put out strong statements opposing those sanctions. But America has said, you know, if you don't comply, if you keep on importing Iranian oil, you're going to be cut off from America's financial system. Um, that's a very strong measure. The question is how quickly the Trump administration might seek to enforce those sanctions. That's still kind of an open question. In and, and the meantime, you know, the Trump administration very much wants um, Saudi Arabia to increase production in order to, to keep the oil price from rising too high. But Saudi Arabia, it's not exactly clear when they might do that, to what extent they might increase production. So there are a lot of big, big open questions. And what the Trump administration has done is quite bold and has quite a number of high risks.
1: Charlotte, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: On this week's episode of our interview show, The Economist Asks, my colleague Anne McElvoy talks to the Man Booker Prize-winning novelist Ian McEwen he's got some thoughts on how future artificial intelligence might respond to the better angels of human nature. Remember that we know how to be good. We have all our religions, all our philosophies, all our garden fence gossip shows that we know how to be good people, but we can't always be good people. So what happens if we start giving artificial minds all our best impulses and then find they live among us and are not cutting the kind of slack that we cut each other and ourselves? You can't really program that. So, uh, we might have this rather more joyful problem that we have nicer people among them. The Economist Asks is out every Friday. Find it wherever you listen. Today, Egyptians are celebrating the Spring Festival of Shemin Nassim with picnics and parties. Our Cairo correspondent, Greg Karlstrom, has been looking into the holiday's trademark treat. It's gray mullet
3: that has been first dried in the sun after it's caught, and then it's submerged in a salt bath for about 45 days. But this fish, called physique, is not just a holiday delicacy. It also has a history as a health risk. The danger to it is because the fish that are put into these barrels, into the salt bath, are raw fish, if there's not enough salt in the bath, then they essentially just rot in the barrel. And there's a risk of botulism or other toxins growing. And you buy it from specialized stores around Cairo that sell it by the kilo. A kilo of it costs about 200 Egyptian pounds. That's between 11 and 12 U.S. dollars. Uh, It works out to a full day's wage for many people. And it's something that people buy as a holiday delicacy in the springtime. It looks by all appearances on the outside like a normal fish. But when you cut into it, uh, there's sort of a gooey consistency inside because of the fermentation process. Quite a, a pungent, powerful taste, so it's not something you'd want to eat just by itself. And, and quite a powerful smell. It is. Uh, it's so powerful of a smell that many restaurants will not serve it because the smell would just be overpowering. It's meant to be eaten outside. It's something you take to eat at a picnic. And it's
1: a it's a holiday treat, you say?
3: It is. It's served for the holiday of Shem Nassim, which translates to smelling the breeze. It's the oldest holiday on the Egyptian calendar. It doesn't come from Christianity or from Islam or from modern republican traditions. Uh, it goes all the way back to pharaonic times. The ancient Egyptians used to make sacrifices to the gods in the springtime because around this time of year, each year, the Nile would flood. And then fast forward hundreds or thousands of years, Egypt was one of the first countries where Christianity arrived. And when the church took root, it embraced the holiday as new religions often do. It it embraced and co-opted the tradition. And it's still something that is celebrated to this day on the day after Easter in the Orthodox calendar, which is today but something that has become a, a truly national holiday. It's beloved by Christians, by Muslims.
1: Um, and, and it's a time to, to eat fasikh, but how, how did the fish get tied up with the holiday?
3: That's a good question, and no one really knows the answer. The most common theory you hear is, back in the ancient Egyptian times, during the spring, the river's banks were rising, and these fish, the grey mullet, would simply wash up on the shores of the Nile. So perhaps people saw this as almost a, a blessing from the gods, a bounty from the gods, And they didn't want it to go to waste. And so the tradition of preserving the fish and fermenting it the way they do to this day, that's how
1: it took root. And you you mentioned that there is a a health risk inherent in it. It has a, a known fatality rate.
3: It does. And it's become almost part of the Shem and Nassim tradition. Egypt has cycled through five different rulers over the past decade. And the one thing they all seem to agree on is that a few days before the Shem and Nassim holiday, the health ministry needs to put out a statement reminding citizens of the dangers. Every year, at least a few people go to the hospital or made sick by eating it. And in some years, it actually has killed people. 1991 was the worst year. Eighteen people were killed by bad batches of Fasih back then. And as the government likes to remind people,
1: it's a tradition that can potentially be fatal. But it's so beloved that the the government wouldn't dare to outlaw it outright.
3: It is. Not everyone loves it. There are certainly Egyptians who don't like the taste, don't like the smell. Some of them will only admit to that privately and would not dare say that at a, a family gathering. But it is broadly popular. You find every year cooks and supermarkets that come up with different ways to prepare it. And the latest thing over the past year or two, Cairo, like big cities everywhere, it's, it's gotten into the cupcake craze. It has a lot of new high-end bakeries. Uh, and a few of them have started coming out with fasighe cakes, where they've taken salted or fermented fish and tried to find ways to make those into a cheesecake in one case with cream and crudités and
1: salted fish in the middle. That sounds gross. Uh, Look, you can confide in me. Do do you like it?
3: (laughs) I have tried it on a number of occasions, going back to when I was a student in Cairo more than a decade ago. But uh, I would say it's an acquired taste, and it's one
1: I'm still trying to acquire. You you may yet get there. Uh, Greg, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.